I made the decision. If it has to work without me, then I can't make the decisions. I just try to help him make the right ones. You're listening to Create Community. I'm your host, Marsha Drucker. On this podcast, we're exploring the human side of community. I'm chatting with some amazing community builders to define what community truly means. Joining me today is Rosie Sherry. Rosie founded the Ministry of Testing, which is the largest community of software testing professionals. She grew this community from casual meetups to nine yearly conferences, earning 1.5 million in annual revenue. Eventually, Rosie outgrew this community and handed over the day-to-day operations to her amazing team. Today, Rosie is the community manager of Indie Hackers, a community that helps entrepreneurs become profitable while remaining independent. Rosie and I chat about the challenges and opportunities of growing her communities, when it's time to move on and how to do it smoothly, and building versus buying community tools. We also chat about how Rosie homeschools her five kids and balances it all. So let's jump right into it. Hi, Rosie. Welcome to Create Community. I'm so excited to chat with you today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate being on the show. Awesome. Where are you tuning in from today? I live in Brighton in the UK. Super cool. Well, super excited to jump into this. I really love to get an understanding of how my guests actually became community builders in the first place. I think it's so fascinating how we all find ourselves on this journey. I don't think anybody sets out to be a community builder. So I'm really curious, how did you start your career? And what was sort of like the first thing that you did in that? I got into tech quite early on in my career, I guess. I was 20 and I I managed to kind of get a job as a software tester without any qualifications or anything like that. I just managed to kind of get my foot in the door. I did testing for a few years. Uh, My husband was in tech as well. And I was in Brighton at the time. Um, This is going back like 20 years now. but And I I guess it was like five years or so. There was like, you know, a pretty decent geek tech scene in, in Brighton. And I just started going to some of the meetups and there was a, a local conference that I quite enjoyed. And the more like I saw that things were happening, the more I, I was like, well, I could do something like this. I'm like really kind of like introverted within myself and I'd never like organised an event in my life. But I saw um, Girl Geek Dinners happening in London and I thought, oh, that would be cool to host here in Brighton. And that was like my first entry into, in, in, I guess, into the world of community building. I love that you bring that up, the fact that you're introverted. I'm honestly the same way. And I think this is a theme that comes up a lot with people that I interview on this podcast, people who are community builders and bringing people together. For me, like I lead fuck up nights, as as some listeners know, and I'm probably the last person that you would picture leading a community like this. I think you would picture somebody who's very, you know, outgoing and has this like crazy personality, whereas I'm very quiet and reserved. But I think a lot of the time what actually makes a successful community builder, it's not talking, it's listening, right? It's listening to your members, listening to the people that are part of your community, and not really making it about yourself. If you're introverted, you tend to listen more and you tend to try to focus in on how you can help your people. Um, Whereas, you know, if you're more of an audience type person, then you end up being like that famous voice, that famous person, that expert who gets all the attention. And as a result, it ends up becoming more of an audience than, than a community. 
Yeah, that's so interesting. I didn't really think of it from that perspective, but that totally makes sense. Something else that I found really interesting in your early journey is that you were running a co-working space at one point, which I think is so cool. Like I'm part of an awesome co-working space here in Toronto called Project Spaces, and there's an amazing community of people there. How did you first get into that and how did that shape your understanding of community? Yeah, so I, I did the Girl Geek dinners and then that kind of led on to the co-working because I was like meeting lots of people. This was like around like, 2008 and I was just like having a really good time and I loved like the whole excitement around the web 2.0 stuff that was happening at at that time and co-working was quite new Um, I ended up kind of partnering up with a couple of people to run it Um, they had already kind of made some headway on it but they didn't really have the community skills that I had or the ability to like bring people together so for me it was it was an amazing amazing time but yeah it didn't it didn't work out in the end purely down to like business relationships I just it was too difficult so I just left you know and that's the way it goes sometimes but I I always kind of dream of going back to doing something like that but I don't think I will now with COVID and stuff it's an interesting time for co-working spaces. Well, I mean, I think it's it's really cool that you were sort of like a first mover to it. It was not a thing. You know, I think it's something that became popular, what, maybe in the last like five, six years. And like the whole concept of co-working spaces. And I think now is an interesting time for co-working spaces. I think they might actually be filling a gap with, you know, this whole hybrid approach that's going to be happening with working with with a lot of tech companies and, and companies giving up their leases on their spaces, but maybe like a lot of young professionals like myself, like I live in a pretty small condo in downtown Toronto. And I feel like I need it just like for that mental health side of things to like once in a while to be able to be part of something and to work from somewhere that's not my house. So we'll see how it goes with, with you know, restrictions and everything. But I think co-working spaces might have a very interesting role to play. So let's jump into the Ministry of Testing, the first really like official community that you started. So why did you create the Ministry of Testing and what is it for anybody that maybe isn't familiar? I started it originally, it was called like the Software Testing Club. And mostly it was, uh, I was doing these meetups, I was doing this co-working space. I started it before the co-working space actually, kind of alongside the meetups that I was doing. But it was this whole like web 2.0 era and I was kind of tuning into like community stuff and I kind of knew what was out there and I knew that there wasn't really basically anything out there for the testers and then ning.com came out which was basically a hosted forum community type tool I saw it I was like oh that's interesting so I just thought well what can I do with ning because I oh I could create this community for software testers and see how it goes I didn't really know what I was doing. I didn't really like think of it like with a plan to like grow it into something sustainable, but I was definitely kind of like excited about the idea of trying to build something. I think it's so interesting because, you know, like that is not an industry that's like sexy or glamorous, but I think the people within it are so interesting and they have so many diverse interests outside of what they do day to day in their job. So it's really cool that you created that and you started bringing these people together. How did the communities evolve over time from when you first started it to what it is today? I did the software testing club. That was like kind of how it started out. And then after like three years, it had grown to, I, I don't know how, I guess a few thousand people. 
and it was just like taking up a lot of my time. So coming around to like 2010, I kind of made the decision that I'm kind of spending a lot of time on this. How can I make it work? Do I want to make it work for me? That's when I made the decision, basically. I said to myself, it has to make me some money or I'm just not going to do it because you've got one life to live and I'm not going to just waste my time away on something that might just suck the life out of me. So around 2010, I set up a company and as I was doing that, I was thinking, well, what what do I think testers need? And I always came back to the idea of events. They need, you know, good affordable like conference and training a lot of my focus even going back to like when I started software testing club was that how can I make this industry more fun I wouldn't say necessarily inspire people but I just didn't want to make it boring because I just felt like the industry was so boring so I always tried to inject some fun into it and like when I set up the company I decided to do the events and I decided well I can't do the events through Software Testing Club because that's like a forum. So I just decided to set up Ministry of Testing as like a separate website. And that was like the focus for for the events and training stuff. I really like that you brought up that, you know, you came to this fork in the road where you had to make it something that was going to be sustainable for yourself and that was going to reward you for the time that you put into it. I think it's a, it's a big thing that comes up for community builders because most of the time we start our communities as just something that we think should exist, something that we're looking for ourselves and we want to bring people together. And it's a lot of the time never about the money. It's really about creating something that the world needs. But when you see the amount of work that it takes and the amount of dedication that it takes to actually keep it consistent, keep it sustainable, bring value to people that are participating in this community, at some point you really do have to start monetizing it and you have to find ways to do that and in ways that feel authentic and that's still going to bring value to your community. And I think a lot of really strong community builders really struggle with it because it can be seen as something that's, you know, maybe like exploiting your members or marketing to them too much. But I think there's definitely a balance. And I struggled with that quite a bit too with Fuck Up Nights Toronto. How did you find opportunities to start making money from it? Communities are really hard to make a living from, I think. I think not a lot of people are able to do it well. Um, I was actually surprised, like, there was one point that I was just like making I want to say so much money, but I was like, I ended up looking at my bank balance. I think, really? Do I have this much money? How did I do that Like over the past year when it was mostly at that time just like me running the day-to-day? I tried to be as community-focused as possible. I tried to like give back to the community a lot. I used to give away like scholarship tickets. I also um, had one rule that we've pretty much never broken is just that we don't do exhibition booths or stands we don't have these big hallways or sponsors we don't sell out to speakers we don't have companies that pay to kind of speak and we never did any of that and it was hard at the beginning because like the first I guess couple of years of doing conferences it's like didn't really make that much money but I think you know it worked for me longer term because people saw the value in the experience and and the content that what they were kind of 
there for. That was such a big thing for me too. With Fuck Up Nights, like we never had like, you know, these like big booths or anything set up. Like I was very conscious and the partners that I would bring on board, I'd kind of look at it from two perspectives. Like one is like businesses that would help the entrepreneurs in our audience not fuck up their business. So like one of them, we had an accounting software solution. Like a, a lot of the fuck up stories that we'd hear at our events were people that their business failed because they weren't really watching the financials of it. So that was a great fit. We had Shopify for our venue partner, which is also really like entrepreneurial. And, and you know, both of those partners really they just wanted to support the community and they weren't there to set up a booth or anything like that. They found values in, in other ways. So how did you like, you know, for some of those sponsors that maybe did want to set up a booth, were you still able to bring them on board and give them value in, in different ways? Or did you look for other sponsors that, you know, were open to other things? We've definitely managed to push back on like some of the sponsors we have now where they make requests and we just have said no. That's not how we do things. This is how we do things and we can show you value in like different ways. But you know, at the same time as that we get we, we had lots of inquiries over the years of people that just waste our time and they want to just jump on a call and let's talk about this, let's see how we can sponsor you and they've got budget for X, Y and Z. But then when it comes down to it you know, they measure everything like by click and they want the clicks or they want the emails and, you know, they want the list of all the people that attend. And it's frustrating because it's like they waste your time. How did you know that it was the right time to, you know, let your baby flourish without you and to pass it on? Mostly it came down to that I'd like lost like a vision and a passion for what I was doing. And that was mostly down to, you know, like I was a tester to begin with and that's why I started it and I understood the industry. But, you know, at the end of the day, I got bored of testing and then I lost my enthusiasm. And then the company also became very events focused and I had three kids in, in addition to that I already had, sorry. And the more we ended up doing more like physical events in different parts of the world. I was just like, I can't, I can't do this. Uh, not with kids. I don't want to travel. I don't find joy in traveling. I, I just felt like, you know, maybe this isn't for me anymore. Maybe this is just like growing in a direction that that isn't for me. And that's okay. But what am I going to do with that? And what happened like along the ways, like the conferences we did, we call them test bash. People started requesting them in, in different locations and one of the people who wanted to do one, Richard, who's now the CEO, he wanted to do one in Manchester. So we kind of worked together for a couple of years doing a couple of events and we got on well and, you know, he did a good job in doing things and he's inspired and more passionate about testing more than I was. You know, he was just up for taking on, on the role and we had worked together. I kind of had the confidence that, you know, he had the right intentions at heart. He's sacrificed a lot. You know, I don't think people realise it from the outside, how much he, he sacrificed. I think that's one of the hardest bits is like the business side of things. You know, people still like see it as a community, but we, we still have to figure out how to make the money work. Do you still stay involved with that in any way? Like, do you still advise them or did you sort of make a clean cut after you made that decision to leave? Well, I still own it. So I have no choice but to be involved. 
But day to day, I'm not involved. So I see myself as like a kind of a board member, an advisor. I try to give my perspective of things and especially like with my knowledge, more like with indie hackers and what I've learned more about business since taking on, on my indie hackers role. I can kind of give some insights that Richard might not be aware of. But I made the decision. Um, if it has to work without me, then I can't make the decisions. I just try to help him make the right ones. You know, I can kind of relate to this. So I run Fuck Up Nights Toronto, and about two years into it, I also launched another chapter in Kitchener-Waterloo, which is just outside of Toronto, about an hour and a half drive. And it's a very like tech-focused area. BlackBerry was actually started there. And I ran it there for about a year, and I like, established an awesome team, great partnerships. We hosted a few really great events. And then I just saw that, you know, my focus was split. Like I was, you know, fuck up nice Toronto. I still saw that. Like I live in Toronto, so I'm so much more immersed in that city. And I was just coming like once every few months to Kitchener-Waterloo to, you know, put on an event and then head back to Toronto. And it just didn't feel right after a while. And there was somebody that got involved on my team named Jeff. He lives in that region. He lives and breathes it. He knows like who all the best speakers would be, who to get involved with the community. And about a year into it, I, I made the decision that it would just be so much better in his hands for him to lead it and I was able to pass it on and it's it's really cool just you know watching it from afar now and seeing that community and that team flourish without me but it's not easy making that decision and it I would have never done it unless I had found like the absolute right person I think I would have just kept going with it how did the community and how did the rest of the team take it when you know you decided to pass on the operations of it I didn't get too many comments, to be honest. I think the way I did it is like I stepped back a bit more and more, like every month I did less and less. So I think when it came down to the announcement, like people were probably like expecting it anyways. It's not like I brought in a stranger and I think that's what made it all okay. It's like they knew who was going to run it. So somehow along the way, I was called like Boss Boss. That became my name, my role. And then every new person that came on board ended up having like a boss title as well we've got money boss actually who's our accounts person <laughs> i love that <laughs> we've got the community boss the social boss the... so i changed my boss name to like founder boss and he became boss boss Now you're part of a totally different community. Tell me a little bit about what drew you to Indie Hackers and what is Indie Hackers for anybody that might not know. Yeah, so Indie Hackers is basically a community of people trying to create independent businesses on their own. It's not strictly without funding, but they're just, you know, not necessarily going down the VC route. They're exploring their own independent ways of creating businesses. So it was founded by Cortland, and then he started it by doing some text-based interviews of people who, who were like kind of bootstrapping their businesses. And I saw that he was doing it quite early on, and I thought, oh, I, you know, I could do that. I've always wanted to kind of be a bit more open with my story, and one of the requirements is that you share your figures, you know, trying to break down the barriers that people often like don't talk openly about money. They have hundreds of interviews now, but I was like number 17 or something like that. I saw that they were looking to hire someone. Originally, he was just looking for someone to help with Twitter 
I kind of put my name forward for that, and and he got a bit confused. He was like, you know, he was like, "What about Ministry of Testing? Aren't you doing that?" I was like, "Oh, well, I'm just trying to look for other things to do at the moment." We chatted, and he was like, "Well, I I don't want you to do the Twitter. I want you to run the community." That's incredible. I love hearing these stories when people are in the community and then they end up getting hired into it. I think that's so powerful and you have such a unique understanding of it from that perspective. So what does your role as a community manager entail? What's your day-to-day look like? A lot of it is, especially when I started, was not very, I guess, some people look at it and think, oh, it's so amazing. But a lot of it was like content moderation um, or curation deciding what posts would get like pushed to to the homepage but it's grown a lot since I started so that we've now managed to like automate that it's not quite as good as me manually doing it but you know it's like it got, there's too many posts now for me yeah it has to be scalable for sure <laughs> how big is the community now like how many people are a part of it it's something like 130,000 at the moment i think that's wild i think officially the biggest community that i've i've now interviewed for the podcast that's super cool there's somebody that i spoke to that has a, a slack community with over 70,000 people in it that one was pretty wild too just like how quickly the messages in that slack disappear with like the amount of activity that's happening so I recently joined the Indie Hackers community. I can't believe that I wasn't part of it before. It was it was always on my radar. But what I think is really cool about it is how it's on a custom-built platform. I think, you know, a lot of communities these days, they start on either, like, Facebook groups or they're using Slack or one of the, like, hundreds of other tools that are exploding now in the community space, like Circle, Discord. Do you know why the decision was made to put Indie Hackers on, on its own custom-built platform? Cortland codes it all. He's very capable from that perspective. But he has this story of saying that he wanted to make it dark blue because he wanted it to stand out because basically it's like you go to any community and they all look the same. So I wish more communities would do that. And I've tweeted or whatever a bit about it, but people want communities, right? And they want sustainable communities, but I don't think they can have them unless they invest in building them, just like they would build a SaaS. You know, there's so many people like you know, wanted to build SaaSes and, and trying to build them, quite often custom build stuff and, you know, design stuff in. But when it comes to communities, there's like hardly anyone doing that. Yeah, that's actually, it's an interesting way of looking at it because I think, you know, it's a lot of people are very eager to get started with community building, especially now it's like becoming this like buzzword and everybody's trying to create a community. But I think, you know, when you started on something that's an outside tool, whatever it may be, at the end of the day, you don't really own the community or you don't have as much control of, over it because you're kind of giving way to whatever the algorithm is of the platform that you're using, especially, you know, if you're doing it on like a Facebook group, you don't know how visible those posts are going to be over time and you're really at the mercy of, uh, of that company. Something that I think is really cool about Indie Hackers, you know, as soon as I, I joined in, I love how there's really a clear flow of what you should do when you first join the community. So you're not just kind of guessing like where you should jump into the conversation. There's, you know, a place where you introduce yourself, you pick which topics you're interested in, and it really kind of takes you on this journey through the community. Can you tell me a little bit more about that and just anything else that you do as a community manager to really encourage your members to engage in active and meaningful discussions with each other? What you're talking about there is like the onboarding for indie hackers, which has been kind of improved since I've been there. It's, it's improved and it's changed 
you get a message from me when you join, you land on a page, it's like, welcome to the community, and do you encourage to leave a comment on that post? And, and like the idea behind that is to try to get people to participate you know, in a small way to hopefully encourage them to continue participating because a lot of us know as community managers it's hard to get people to participate. So that's worked really well. So that post that you see when you join, that's an automated post. I really like how you have that balance, how, you know, some of it is automated and some of it is, you know, it has that personal touch from you. I think you really need that to keep a community of the size going and, you know, keep it active. What do you think makes this community magical? You know, I think the best communities really do kind of have that element of magic. Is there anything that kind of jumps to mind or are there any like really cool success stories between members that you've heard? There's definitely something special about Indie Hackers. There's, there was something special about Ministry of Testing. And that that's kind of what drew me to Indie Hackers is that I felt that there was a similar love to the community. There's something that people genuinely felt that Indie Hackers is trying to do the best that they can. Even though they've been acquired by Stripe, quite often when communities get acquired, they you know lose some of their mojo, I guess, or some of their uh, ability to make creative decisions and stuff like that. Indie Hackers is, seems to, you know, do okay to maintain their own little independent island separate from Stripe, even though they're funded by Stripe. It's quite interesting. You know, a lot of it is down to Cortland, and I, I believe the seeds that he sowed from the beginning of, like, trying to create, like, an interesting community and, and a, like, a positive environment. I mean, when I joined, I was really quite worried as like a woman in tech running a community that has a majority of men still, you know, basically still surrounded by lots of men. I was worried that I would have to deal with a lot of, I guess, uh, the stuff that often, you know, comes up in these, the negativity and the, the trolling and stuff like that. But there's literally none of that. And people like genuinely, you know, want to help each other and they contribute in a way that's very supportive and you know even like new people to the community it's amazing how nice people are to like sometimes obvious and stupid questions but the responses they get is like hey you know I understand you're probably new here but this is probably what you should think about you know it's like there's no stupid question but I think like quite often in other communities you wouldn't get that they'll be like oh man why didn't you search the forums first before posting this or something like that and, you know it's none of that so I absolutely love your Twitter. If anybody's not following Rosie on Twitter, you need to get on that. But you have this one tweet that I think has gone kind of viral-ish. We shared it on our Create Community Instagram. It got a lot of shares and comments on there as well. And the tweet says, everyone wants to start a community. Very few of them want to put in the work. And like, wow, that really says a lot. Like going back to that tweet, how can a prospective community creator mentally prepare themselves for the work that's required to build a sustainable and consistent community? I think the typical thing these days is that when so someone asks about a community, they're like, what tool do I need? And they jump straight to the tool. It's like almost every single time. And they don't like really think about everything else that's involved with, with building a community. And to me, it's like building a community starts with trust, especially now when there's like so much noise to compete with. It's like, there's no point starting a community if you don't have trust in the people around you. And trust doesn't happen overnight, so you have to build up slowly. Imagine trying to, you know, build up a, a group of friends. It's hard. It takes time. You have to put in effort. You have to reach out. You have to 
listen to them, you have to help them, you have to, you know, do all these kind of things. And that's like what you need to do for communities. And it's like, I think almost every community starts really, really small. But when people want a community these days, they want to start big. And it just doesn't, it doesn't work like that, because they end up doing things that don't generate the impact or that feeling of community. And it just doesn't end up going anywhere. The stuff like I do with Rosyland, I've spent the past year working on it, slowly building up, slowly trying to create resources, connecting with people, you know, chatting with people, tweeting, you know, building confidence so that people like know who I am and they trust what I'm working towards. Honestly, like in the community building world, no one knew who I was like 12 or 18 months ago. Honestly, I have the exact same approach with this podcast, even it's like it's slowly growing. And, you know, I'm also not in a rush with it. I really want to make sure that it's, you know, quality over quantity and the people that are listening to it are actually getting value from it. And, and so far, like, it's really cool to see like every, you know, week or so, just like the numbers do go up and I'm starting to get messages from, you know, people on LinkedIn from, you know, different parts of the world who are listening to it and really like thankful that this content exists. So I'm curious, how do you balance everything? You know, you have five kids now. I know that you're homeschooling them you have your full-time role the newsletter and like so many other things on the go how do you do it all it's 24 hours in the day right (laughs) about seven of those are for sleeping eight of those with the kids and then there's another eight for work so that's the basic math of it (laughs) and then there's you know my husband we we share everything equally since covid we're basically constantly swapping childcare over which isn't easy to be honest my youngest one is she's almost three so it's quite tough with her we used to send her to nursery so we miss that because you know she's just like at that age where things are tough but yeah you, you take that math and you can make it work and I think over the years I've kind of become super efficient in how I use my time I don't watch tv or you know Netflix that much I'm quite often um, kind of multitasking, like if I take my kids down the park, often I do exercise whilst I'm I'm there with them, stuff like that. Or if I'm not doing that, then maybe I'm listening to a podcast whilst they play. So I just try to find ways to where I feel like I'm getting something myself, even though I'm with them and they're still happy doing what they're doing. So I'm curious what communities you're part of, you know, outside of the work that you do. Are there any communities that are meaningful to you on a personal level? I guess there's like some homeschooling stuff that I kind of sign up to locally. But to be honest, most of my community is around work. That's fair. I think it's really fascinating that you were doing homeschooling before COVID. So I think now like you have so much to like probably contribute to that community with a lot of people, you know, joining it now who are making the decision to homeschool their kids. It's one of the things I've been wanting to do for years. Because we take the like unschooling approach. So we like, which is basically not following a set curriculum. We just like follow what our kids want to do and we believe they should be doing. So it's not entirely up to them, but there's no curriculum involved. Um, and I've had a domain name that I've been sitting on for years and I've been itching to like start a like an unschooling community around that. 
Yes. <laughs> I mean, obviously, I'm going to encourage you to create that community, but only so many hours in a day. So this is a little bit of a strange question, but I love hearing people's responses to it. How do you choose your people? You know, like the five to six people that are closest to you in your life. Do you feel like you look for certain qualities and are you intentional with that really like personal community or is it something that's more organic? Sometimes I feel really different from the people around me, like locally. If I tried to speak about Rosie Land, for example, to someone, they'd be like, what, what are you talking about? I have no clue what you're on about. What do you mean you can like, have this newsletter? What do you mean community? Or, you know, it's like, you know, they won't understand that. And because that's like my personal, I hate using the word passion, but that's like what I'm into. I want to find people that kind of align with that. And I kind of struggle with this a bit because like with homeschooling, you get so many different characters. And it's so hard to actually meet people that align with the people that you want to be hanging out with. So I have to be careful with the words I use. But there's definitely characters there that I, I wouldn't want to hang out with because we don't have the same values. So for me, it's like, yeah, I guess I, I would summarize my values or the type of people that I look for are generally tech aligned because generally tech people tend to be more open-minded and more forward-thinking and rather than quite often locally we get like conspiracy theorists and you know conversations happening around that and I'm just like I don't I don't have time for this kind of conversation. That totally makes sense I mean you know before we were kind of stuck with the local communities and the people that were kind of like nearest to us now in this digital world that we're living in we really can surround ourselves with people that are like-minded and that are going to have similar values. So I think it's really cool that you're, you're seeking those people out. So my last question for you is, and I ask this of everybody on the podcast, what does the word community mean to you? I, I don't think I have a good answer, to be honest. I think community is just about coming together, uh, you know, with people that you want to be with in some kind of, not structured, but in some kind of intentional way. It's a tough one to answer, especially for people that are actually building communities, because it's like, oh, wow, like it's just something that comes so like naturally and something that we're so immersed in. But when you look at it from that lens, it's like, wow, how, how do you define it? I definitely struggle with it, too. But I've heard some really cool definitions from this podcast. Awesome. Well, Rosie, thank you so much again for making the time to chat with me. This was so much fun. No problem. A good chat. I had such a great time chatting with Rosie, and I hope you learned as much as I did from this conversation. You can follow Rosie on Twitter at Rosie Sherry and subscribe to her newsletter at rosieland.substack.com. And you can learn more about her communities at ministryoftesting.com and indiehackers.com. Thanks for tuning in to Create Community, a podcast where I chat with incredible community builders to define what community truly means. You can check out the series on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you normally listen. Please remember to subscribe and leave us a rating and review. I'd really love to hear your feedback. You can also follow us on Instagram at createcommunitypod or check out our website at createcommunitypod.com for updates. Once again, I'm Marsha Drucker, your host, signing off. A huge thank you to Origins Media House for producing this series. You can find them at originsmediahouse.com, where house is spelled H-A-U-S, or on LinkedIn and Instagram at Origins Media House and Twitter at Origins Media.